all our sins and griefs to bear. And if you'd like to be ready, our next song will be number 332. Well, I'll get to the easy part uh, this evening. I'm going to ask the question. Brother Andrew's going to bring us the scriptural uh, answer. And... Um, we must remember that Jesus built his ministry around uh, questions. Uh, many say that he asked over 307 questions while he was uh, living and serving on this earth. And that people came and asked him over 187 questions. And sometimes he would give a direct answer. Many times he would give an indirect answer. But nonetheless, he did build a lot of his conversations, his lessons that we have down in our hearts, he built those on questions. And so every so often we like to follow that format as well. And so we'll have three primary questions tonight. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Why do we experience here in this life, why do we experience pain and suffering? Why do we experience pain and suffering? We know there are several examples in the Bible of those who endured like Job and uh, Paul endured a lot. You know, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, uh, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Uh, Gideon, one time, he, he, he asked the question, really, in Judges 6, 13, he said, 
He said, if God be with us, then why has all this befallen us? And so it's an important question. Why do we experience pain and suffering? And Brother Andrew is going to address this right now. Good evening. I certainly do appreciate the uh, vote of confidence to, to be able to uh, answer these questions. Uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, there were, it could have been about uh, 20 different people who could have been more uh, adequately uh, equipped to answer these questions, but I certainly do appreciate uh, the challenge. You know, when uh, David presented me a list of questions to choose from, uh, I was noticing that those were a lot of the questions that I would have liked to know the answers and so I appreciate the, this opportunity to tell you what, what some of these questions. Uh, I, I will not pretend that I know all the answers, and I will tell you when I don't. Uh, I will tell you what I found, though, when, in my uh, study uh, of these uh, answers to the, some of these questions. Why do we experience pain and suffering? Perhaps it's an appropriate question, considering that there's much of it going on around uh, our nation today, pain and suffering uh, it should first be noted that pain and suffering, uh, the source, what's the source of pain and suffering? Well, it doesn't come from God, nor is God uh, entertained. God does not desire uh, us to experience pain and suffering. God does not derive any pleasure from our pain and suffering. I, I think of Genesis chapter 6, just before the worldwide flood, you see God there inspecting the world. And what he finds is continual wickedness. In fact, the, it says that the, the Lord was sorry. Well, why was he sorry? Because when he looked at the world, what he found is that the intent of man's heart was only evil continually. And what that implies is if there is continual evil, then there's continual pain. There's continual suffering and sorrow. And Genesis 6, 6 says that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. God did not create man for the purpose of suffering. He did not create man for the, for the purpose of experiencing pain. That's not why he created mankind for destruction. The reason that he created mankind was to bless them and now he cannot do that. And so it grieves God. It does not give God pleasure to see us suffering and experiencing pain. That being said, there is a problem reconciling thoughts of an all-good and all-loving God and pain and suffering. It's two thoughts that most people feel do not go together. Two thoughts that we feel don't mesh. And, and, and if we're going to have a good and happy life, well, the less suffering and the less pain that I experience in life, the better. That would, that would call for a happier life. In fact, people have such a problem with suffering that it even causes some to say, I cannot believe in an all-good God if there is going to be pain and suffering. After all, a loving God wouldn't allow such a thing to exist in His creation. In fact, if you ever find yourself talking with an atheist or a skeptic, an unbeliever, Often the conversation is centered around this point right here, the idea of suffering and what Christians claim. You see, there are two things that Christians claim at, that, that, that the atheist feels does not mesh with suffering. Number one, the, the, the Christians claim that God is an all-powerful God. But in the atheist's mind, that cannot be true because if God is all-powerful, wouldn't he stop the suffering? 
But then that's not the only claim that Christians make. They claim that God is an all-loving God. And they say that's not possible. Because if He were loving and if He were powerful, well, maybe He's not loving enough to do something about it and stop the suffering. And so they call this a paradox of sorts. In their mind, the idea of an all-powerful and an all-loving God cannot coexist with suffering. And so they say, I refuse to believe in a God who is either not powerful enough or not loving enough to stop the suffering. However, this kind of thinking neglects several important points about suffering. Uh, First of all, it neglects the fact that suffering can come from a, a, a variety of sources that have nothing to do with God. It doesn't take you long in reading your Bible. You see God creating Creation, making the world. And at the end of the days, he says that it was very good. You'll read that over and over. But what happens next is God gives man this incredible gift called free will. You ever heard of free will? Choice. People can be hurt by free will and choice. God did not create create us to be love robots. He did not create us to be like the animals. I think of Psalm 32 verse 9. Where King David says, do not be like the horse. Do not be like the the mule which have no understanding. And which must be harnessed with bit and bridle. Else they would not come. Or you think of James chapter 3. It says that we behold we put bits in horses mouths. That they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. God does not create us like the animals. God created us with this Incredible gift of choosing. And friends, because we are given the gift of choice, we suffer. Why? Because we don't always make the right choice. We make choices that hurt ourselves. How many of us have made a choice that we ended up being at the the negative outcome of that choice? I have too many stories to share with you. We don't have the time. I'm pretty sure that you have the stories as well. But it's not like God does not leave us without warning and making these choices. And when you read your Old Testament, what you see is constant warning. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't mingle with these people. Don't eat that. Do it this way. Did Israel always listen? No. And whenever they didn't listen, somebody ended up suffering. Why does God give mankind law and commandment i submit to you friends and it's the biblical answer it's the same reasons that parents give rules for their household not to make life miserable it's to protect their household to protect their children for the good of the children deuteronomy 6 24 it says the lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the lord why for our good Always that he might preserve us alive. God giving us free will and us making bad choices calls for suffering because, friends, we don't always make the right choice. And as a result, we will suffer. But then there are the choices of others. We don't just hurt ourselves. Sometimes we might just hurt ourselves by taking up drinking and and deciding to get behind the wheel. But usually there's another victim when we decide to do that. Other people's choices can hurt others. You think, we can think of many examples out in the world. You know, somebody, a group of evil people, decided to hijack some airplanes and fly them into the Twin Towers. People suffered. People suffered because others made some bad choices. Somebody decided it was a good idea to go into a building and shoot up a crowd. 
People suffered for that because of somebody else's choice. You might think of some biblical examples. You think of the example of Achan. Achan decided it was a good idea to take things that God told him not to take. And as a result of that, it's not just Achan that suffers. You find out that people lost their lives because of his decision. What about their families? How far does this suffering go because of one person's decision? Then aside from choice, you have things like natural disasters and accidents and and tornadoes. As Solomon says, time and chance happens to everybody. Sometimes, friends, things just happen with no spiritual reason behind them. I think of Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Jesus, when he brings up the example, the illustration of the Tower of Siloam. He says, remember the Tower of Siloam? Remember those 18 people on whom those, that tower fell and they lost their lives? You know what people wanted to do? They wanted to attach some kind of spiritual reason behind that. And Jesus says, no, they are not worse sinners than everybody else. Sometimes towers just fall. Sometimes accidents just happen. Sometimes buildings just collapse and there is no reason behind it. Time and chance, friends. It happens to everybody. But here's another idea behind this idea of suffering that most people neglect. Why do we experience pain and suffering Most people fail to forget that there is benefit in suffering. The idea of suffering is not an existence for a problem for the existence of God. In fact, it can have benefit. Could it be the case, friends, that that God is very much aware of the, the idea of suffering? Could it be the fact that he sees things from a different perspective than we do? Could it be the case that that God sees that there is some benefit derived from our suffering and so he allows it to happen? Could it be the case that God wants us to be eternally happy and not just have a pain-free life here on earth? Could that be the case? Is it possible that there are things gained from pain and suffering that I could not get without them? Somebody might say, well, what kind of things? You think of things like a higher perspective, wisdom, bravery, courage. Or you open up your Bibles, what about things like patience? James 1, 2, and 3, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when life is going good. That's not what it says. Count it all joy when you fall into the diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That without the trials, you can't get to that same point. Or you think about holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about the, about to the, the, the suffering saints. In Hebrews 12, 5, it says, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. He says in verse 9, We have had fathers of our earthly flesh which rebuked us. Shall we not much rather be in subject to the father of spirits and, 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 and live? For they verily... Our earthly fathers chastened us for a few days after our own pleasure, but he, that is God, for our own good, for our profit. Why? That we might be partakers of his holiness. That without the suffering, we can't get there. What about spiritual strength? You remember Paul praying in 2 Corinthians 12? He prays to God three times for God to remove that thorn in the flesh. And how does God respond? 
My grace is sufficient. Why? Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Friends, the idea of God, an all-good God, and an all-powerful God and suffering, they can go they can go hand in hand. Godliness and suffering can coexist. In fact, godliness demands it. Why do we experience pain and suffering? Perhaps a better question, and in light of, of David's uh, uh, sermon in this morning, of what Jesus did for us. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sometimes we ask the question, why does this happen? Maybe a better question to ask. Why not? Here we are, but straight pilgrims here. Our path is often dim, but to cheer us on our journey, still we sing this wayside hymn. Yonder over the rolling river, where the shining mansions rise, soon will be our home forever. And the smile of the blessed giver gladdens all our longing eyes. Here our feet are often weary. The hills that throng our way Here the tempest darkly gathers But the hearts within us say Yonder over the rolling river Where the shining mansions rise Soon will be our home forever And the smile of the blessed giver Blinds all our longing eyes Here our souls are often fearful Of the pilgrims lurking foe but the Lord is our defender, and He tells us we may know. Yonder over the rolling river, where the shining mansions rise, soon will be our home forever, and the smile of the blessed giver blinds all our longing eyes. Time for our next uh, part of the lesson. Our next song will be number 98. 98. Appreciate very much those very good thoughts from Andrew on pain and suffering. Our next question is, uh, what is the key to handling grief? What is the key to handling grief? You know, in the Bible, we, we see people uh, dealing with grief and having funerals, and that's a re- another reality of life. They, Acts 8, though the people were scattered abroad because of persecution, still they made a great lamentation over the stoning and death of Stephen. And so we see many dealing with grief in the Bible. Uh, Jesus went to visit Mary and Martha and at the passing of Lazarus, and, and he wept uh, with them. And so uh, an important question then is um, how do we handle, what, what's the key to handling uh, grief from a scriptural standpoint? So let's listen as Andrew comes before us. Grief, perhaps it's a, it's a good topic to talk about, especially after considering what we just did. Pain and suffering, the inevitable outcome of that is somebody will be left grieving. I'm going to be in the book of Job uh, this, uh, this uh, afternoon, so if you want to go there for uh, our 
our answer here. But I just want to uh, feel like I have to say a caveat. I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, a counselor, a therapist by any means. I don't pretend to be one. I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of grief, but I do have a Bible. And what I know is that the Bible says that we can use examples. In fact, uh, which that's what we're going to do here this this afternoon. I'm going to take James's advice. James 5, 10, and 11 will say, Take the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed when endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. And see the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and Merciful. Now, this is not going to be a, an in-depth study on Job, but we're going to draw some quick points out of here. Uh, and the question is, what is the key to handling grief? Uh, I'm not sure as far as what I would consider a key, uh, although I will say a prominent key, and we're going to start off with that when I uh, study Job, and then we'll end on quick three uh, points from there. So four points today uh, answering this question. Well, number one, let's just jump right into it. Here's the first key. Prepare. Prepare for your grieving. Job was prepared to grieve. How so? You see, Job wasn't, uh, he, he, was, he wasn't this unfaithful man who lived a life at, at seeking his own pleasures, a, a man who lived life apart from the will of God. Job wasn't this, this unrighteous man who sold his wild oats and chased after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and was consumed by the pride of life. That's not who we're talking about here. Job is a a man that's characterized by a lifetime of faithfulness to God. In fact, the first verse opens up and introduces us to Job. And what it says of Job is that he feared God and shunned evil. And the same thing is repeated by God in his conversation with the devil. In verse 8 of Job 1, he says, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Job feared God, and it's indicated by the fact that he is offering sacrifices for his children on the off chance that they sinned. And the Bible says that he did this regularly. But not only is Job a godly man, we find out that he is a righteous man. He is righteous toward his fellow man. In in, in chapter 4 of Job, Eliphaz says this of him in verse 3. He says, you instructed many, you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. Job is a comforter. In chapter 29, we see a bit more of Job's character among other people, how he interacted with other people. In verse 7 of chapter 29, we find out that Job is a just man, and he went out to the gate of the city. We might consider the gate of the city as the courtroom of the day. When somebody had an issue, they would go to the gate because that's where the judge sat. And when we, when we turn to this passage, we find out that Job sat there. And then when he sat there, you find out that he says that the young men hid themselves. The aged men stood. The rulers of the city refrained from talking and the nobles hushed their mouths because they wanted to hear Job. In verse 12, he delivered the poor and the fatherless. He comforted those that were perishing, a defender of widows who had no voice. He says in verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Note that Job didn't make life about himself. 
Job made life about other people. He's a defender, an encourager, a comforter. Job didn't make life about him. He wasn't self-seeking. He wasn't seeking his own pleasures. He wasn't covetous. He didn't seek after material goods. Yes, he is rich, but we find out in the opening chapter how he got that way. He's considered the greatest man in all the East. And we find out that one of Satan's accusations made to God about Job, Satan tells God, of course he's faithful to you. You gave him things. You blessed him. In fact, it says that you put a hedge around him. You blessed the work of his hands and you have increased his possessions. Job didn't ask for that. But God blessed him with those things. And now Job is using what God gave him for the betterment of other people's lives. Again, not a therapist. Not a counselor by any means. I will say this though, in my experience of those who have experienced grief. So often it is the case that those who have the most difficulty overcoming grief, those who have the most di- uh, the difficulty overcoming stress and the worries, usually those are the ones who have made life about themselves. They're always seeking their things. Job is not like that. Job made life about God. He made life about other people. What's the point here? The point is Job is ready for the mountain. Job is ready for this incredible trial of losing his family, losing all his children and all his possession and his health. He is ready. The godliness and righteousness Job had, that didn't come overnight. It didn't come from a shallow honoring of God, maybe just a a Sunday morning type follower of God. That's not who Job is. Job had cultivated this this long relationship with God, and now he is going to depend on it unlike any time before in his life. Trusting in and obeying God in the lesser things equips us with the strength and ability to handle the larger things. Let me say that again. Trusting and obeying God in the lesser trials equips us to handle our mountains. Sometimes, friends, we overestimate our abilities and we think that we're just going to get it right when the mountain comes. That when somebody decides they want to shoot up a building, we know what we're going to do. When we can't even be faithful in our attendance. When the unfathomable problems come, and friends, they will. We will grieve. People weren't meant to last forever. You can't magically just reach up and pull faith and strength out of thin air. That kind of confidence and strength and faith and trust that Job had was built over a lifetime. How do we overcome grief? How do we, what is the key? Friends, prepare. Daniel was prepared to face Babylon long before he was in Babylon. So we must prepare. But here's the second point. Open up to God. You know, when I read Job, I can't, I can't help but notice that Job, that's what he did. 
Tell God how you're feeling. You know, Job prayed to God and he said what was in his heart. He sought an audience with God. And we might say that he didn't mince words about it. In fact, just a quick rendering of some verses, Job 10.1, he says, I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Job 10 verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Chapter 13, verse 21, withdraw your hand from me, call and I will answer. Let me speak, then you respond. Why do you hide your face and regard me as an enemy? He's speaking to God. Over and over again, what you see in the book is a persistence on Job's part. Job didn't stop believing on God when he was going through this suffering, nor did he ever blame God. How do I know that? Chapter 1, verse 22. It reads, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job did not blame God, but he told God how he was feeling. Job was grieving and suffering more pain than I can ever imagine. And he prayed by telling God what was really in his heart. Now, I'm not sure if I would go and recommend to you that you speak to God the same way that Job did. Because at the end of this book, what you see is God rebuking Job. As if to say to Job, listen, Job, I don't owe you an answer. But God knows what's in hearts. He knows that we agree. He knows our thoughts. And sometimes in immense suffering and pain and grief, what you find is even the most godly of people let out their heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus' humanity talking. God knows we grieve, friends. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. And in times of grief, those are the times that we need to seek God unlike we ever have before. We sang a lyric in the song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? Because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Show God reverence. Yes, absolutely. Amen. But friends, treat him like a father. Open up to God. Let him know what's in your heart. But here's the third point. Open up to others. Tell others how you're feeling. Open up to friends. You know, that's what Job tried to do. He tried to open up to his friends and he received no comfort. In fact, in chapter 16, Job calls them miserable comforters. And he even gets to saying, if you were the one suffering, I would have given you comfort. The words of my mouth would have given you relief from your grief. When Job was seeking comfort, he received none from his friends. Friends, we we have something that Job never had. Friends, we have a spiritual family who is capable of comforting unlike anybody in the world. Nobody is capable of offering comfort like a Christian. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29, Paul says, Who is weak and I am not weak? When Paul saw a weak person, he himself became weak. 1 Peter 3.8, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Friends, we are blessed in many more ways than Job ever was. 
We have a family who is interested in our emotional welfare. Open up to others. But then our last point in this question, realize where your hope lies. Job had hope. Job 19.25. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Now, I don't know all that Job knew about this Redeemer, but what I do know is that Job had hope. The Bible describes hope as being an anchor to the soul, Hebrews 6.19. It describes hope as being living. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus provides a hope that cannot be taken away. It's living, that is, it's active. It continues to be regardless of circumstance. It cannot be taken away because it's not a hope based on things. How many possessions do we have? You know, Job lost all his things. It's not a hope based on people and how well people act toward me. Job didn't have his hope based on people. His friends let him down. His wife tempted him to curse God. His children perished. We can hope in people. We can hope in things. And friends, we will be let down. Because people don't last. And things go away quickly. Moth and rust destroys. But the Bible describes this hope. In 1 Peter 1, still, as an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, nothing in this world can take away that hope. It goes on to say that this hope is kept by the power of God. That means if you want to take away a Christian's hope, what you would have to do is find a way to get to heaven and pry that hope out of God's hands. It's not going to happen. And there is no way that a faithful child of God should be without hope even amongst immense grief like Job was experiencing. How can I overcome grief? Prepare for it. Open up to God. Open up to others. Realize your hope. No, this is an exhaustive study on grief. But the point is, friends, that there are answers. There are tools. God has given us the tool to face hardships in life. It is inevitable. It will happen. Young people, have a conversation with the older folks and they will tell you it's inevitable. We will experience hardship. That is a given. Friends, we can overcome it. There is a name I love to hear, I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ears, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because He first loved me. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of His precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Oh, how 
because he first loved me. It tells of one whose loving heart can fill my deepest woe, who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. Oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. If you'd like to mark the song of encouragement after the third part of our lesson, uh, be number 600. Let him have his way with the number 600. Again, we've just been led in some wonderful thoughts about... Uh, dealing with grief and letting God uh, guide us in that direction. And our third question is, how do I know God is listening when I pray? How do I know uh, God is listening uh, when I pray? Lots of encouragements in Scripture to pray. Uh, lots of examples of prayer. Uh, but it comes down between, uh, between you, and, you and God, me and God. And how do I know He's listening uh, when I pray? The challenge is, of course, God is invisible. And so we're not seeing him, and also God, um, he doesn't um, he doesn't talk back to us. You know, you can talk to someone and say, uh, you know, did you hear me? You can clarify. Uh, but when we talk to God, he, he, except through what we have in Scripture, God doesn't talk back to us. And so, uh, from that idea, um, how do I know God's listening? And so let's uh, let's have our answer again. How do I know God is listening when I pray? First of all, it should be noted that God is omniscient. That means He knows all things. He hears everything. He sees everything. Does God hear all prayers? I would say yes, much the same way that He sees all actions. He sees not only good actions, He sees evil actions as well. Again, we noted Genesis chapter 6, where God saw what? He saw the wickedness. He saw the evil that was, it was rampant on the earth. In fact, it was evil continually. So God just doesn't have note of the good things. He has note of the bad things as well. Is God aware of prayers, good and bad alike? I would say yes. Just based on his omniscience, we know that, that God listens to my prayer. But I know that's not the question. There is a difference between God having an awareness of my prayer and God responding to my prayer with an answer. To me, when I see this question, what I see is a confidence issue. How can I know for sure that God answers my prayers? Well, first of all, we have, ought to know the things that hinder our prayers. Improper relationships hinder prayers. And improper relationship with God. If Isaiah 59, 2 says that your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. One must be in the right relationship with God and that requires having the blood of Jesus Christ washing our sins away and being reconciled back to God. Ephesians 2, 13 states that but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. We must be in the right relationship. 
Or you think of a relationship between spouses, a husband and wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 calls for a husband to dwell with their wives in an understanding way, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Or you think of an improper relationship with our brethren. 1 John 3.22 says that whatever we ask, we receive because we keep His commandments. And the very next verse says what those commandments are. That we believe on the name of the Son of God and we love the brethren. Which implies is, if I do not love the brethren, I will not receive what I ask for. Improper relationships, also improper attitudes. You think of the attitude of self-righteousness. You remember that, that, that Pharisee and the tax collector when they're praying? And you see that Pharisee saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I'm religious. I, I pay tithes of everything that you give me and I fast so much. I thank you I'm not like this man. And you hear that, that tax collector, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, whose prayer do you think was heard? Selfishness hinders prayer. James 4, 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. An unmerciful attitude, a discompassionate towards the plight of others. Proverbs 21, 13 states, whoever shuts his ears to the poor will also cry out and not be heard. Doubting can hinder our prayer life. James 1, 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, nothing wavering. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Improper relationships, improper attitude, improper lifestyle. Unrighteous living will hinder my prayer life. The Lord is, is far from the wicked, but he, is, he hears the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears and his ears open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. First Peter three twelve. What about unholy thoughts? What about the things that we like and don't like? Psalm sixty six eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The rendering literally means if I see iniquity with pleasure, what are we entertained by? Do we draw pleasure from the things that God does not find pleasure in? What are our entertainment options? What do we watch? What do we hear? And the opposite of that, what do I like? Uh, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. What if I don't rejoice in the truth? What if I want God to hear me, but I'm not interested in what God has to say to me? Proverbs 28.9 One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. How can I know that God is listening? Friends, we must be aware of the things that hinder prayer. But also, and here's the point that I really want to stress and will end on. We must be aware of the true power behind prayer. I think so often when Christians are experiencing doubting, whether it's doubting their prayer life or doubting their salvation, often it's the case is that they start focusing on what they do instead of what Jesus does. Notice Hebrews 6.19. Hebrews 6.19, and as you are turning there, 
I want you to recall the scene after Jesus' final breath. When he's on that cross and he lets out that loud cry, you might recall that the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now note Hebrews 6.19, in speaking of the Christian hope, the Hebrews writer will say this, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the text, it refers to Jesus as being the forerunner. Literally, the word means a scout. What can we infer from this word? First of all, the word scout implies safety. The text reads, Jesus entered. He went somewhere. It's in this, a symbolic act. It's after Jesus let out that final cry, he made his way over to the temple, grabbed a hold of that veil, and rent it in two from top to bottom, and went inside. Well, where did he go? To the very place that it wasn't safe to go. You see, that's what a scout does. He goes to the place that it's not safe to go. We just read it, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Our sins separated us from God. We're the enemies of God. It wasn't safe to go in the very presence of God. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23. The, the, the sin requires blood. The wages of sin is death. Well, what kind of blood? Animal blood? No, the animal, animal blood does not take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away and remove one sin. Hebrews 10, 4. Well, then whose blood? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And speaking of Jesus' entering in, note this, this is neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place. And thus Jesus made peace. He reconciled us to God, having made peace through the blood of His cross, Colossians 1.20. When we think of this word scout, we, it also implies access because the text says that Jesus entered for us. Again, a scout, he goes to the place that is dangerous for those he left behind. And so that those he left behind can now follow where the scout went. Access. You see, under the Old Testament priesthood, only the high priest had access. It wasn't a free access. It was a once-a-year type access on the Day of Atonement. And, and, and even then, the people had to wait outside and wait for that high priest to come back. But when Jesus entered that veil, no longer is the way into the most holy place restricted. Christians can draw near to the very throne of God, not just one time a year. We don't have to find a high priest from the tribe of Levi. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to wait on a specific day. We don't have to wait till all the saints are assembled. Christians have a constant access to the most holy place. Friends, can we just pause and appreciate the incredible and tremendous privilege we have in prayer? You think about that great throne scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees the throne of God and he sees God on his throne high lifted up. He sees the angels make their cry three times. They yell out holy and you see the thresholds and, and, and the trembling and the foundations and, and, and Isaiah falls down. He says, woe is me. I am undone. But then here the Hebrews writer says this. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. It says, let us therefore Come boldly 
unto the throne of grace. That same throne scene. Let us therefore come boldly to that throne. It doesn't mean that we come without reverence, but it means that we come with confidence. Which segues to the third point about Jesus as a scout. It implies confidence. Note Hebrews chapter 7. You see, Jesus didn't just run through that veil and and, and then come back. He didn't just reconcile us back to, to God and then leave us on our own. No, the text says that he entered the veil to make the way safe. He did it for us so that we can follow, but then Jesus did something. Friends, he sat down. He took a position. The text says that he was made a high priest forever. In Hebrews chapter 7, the Hebrews writer is comparing the Old Testament priesthood with the superior priesthood of Jesus. And note this in verse 23 of Hebrews 7. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, Matthew Henry says in his commentary, in all times, in all cases, in every juncture. He is able to save them. Who? Those that come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And in the next chapter, in chapter 8 verse 1, it says that we have such a high priest. Who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heaven. Jesus sat down as the intermediary, as the, as the intercessor, as the high priest. We can find the same thought in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. There it refers to Christ as the advocate. An advocate is a legal term that refers to a lawyer or a mediator. You find yourself standing before a judge and chances are you want somebody representing you. We find out that Satan is our accuser. In fact, that's his very name. His name means accuser. Revelation 12.10 shows us the extent of his work. It says, night and day he accusing you before God. What kind of lawyer do you want? It's been said that the best lawyers are connected with their client and at the same time they know the judge. Do we have a mediator who knows what humanity is like? And do we have a mediator who knows the judge? Satan accusing you night and day going up to God and say he is not worthy of you answering his prayer. But then we read of Jesus, that he always lives to make intercession. And therefore, you can have verses like Romans 8.34, who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of the throne of the hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. God will not hear Satan make make accusations against you. God will not hear other people make accusations against us. God will not even hear us make accusations against us. God will not hear you bad-mouthing you. Why? Because we're so wonderful? No. Because the scout sat down. 
Because Jesus sat down as our high priest and he intercedes for God that we may boldly come to him with confidence, no doubting. And friends, whenever we doubt, whenever we doubt our salvation, whenever we doubt our prayer life, we're not doubting us. We are doubting Jesus' ability to save us. Because the Bible has already said he is able. To the uttermost he is able. We are doubting his ability as the sacrificial lamb. We doubt his work as the scout, our savior. We doubt his work as our high priest. He has already said he is able, friends. To the other most he is able. And it requires you coming boldly to him. You see, the power behind prayer is not how good we are. It's us recognizing what we have in Jesus. And having the confidence and the faith in his work, not our work. But friends, we must go to him. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. But friends, we must go to God in prayer. Jesus sat down. Always lives to make intercession. How do I know that God answers our prayers? Know the things that hinder, yes. But friends, never forget where our confidence lies. God is a father who hears his, his children and answers their prayers for friends. The privilege is restricted to his children. And that's what you need to be. You need to be his child if you're not. And we extend to you the Lord's invitation at this moment. If you're not a child, that's what you need to be. And if you are his child, it may be the case that there are things in this life that have gotten in the way of that relationship with God. Maybe it's improper relationships. Maybe it's improper attitudes. Or maybe it's an improper lifestyle. You've been behaving like you're not the child of God. Well, it's time to come back home. God will have you back. And so we offer you this invitation to make things right with God. And if we can help you in any way to make things right with God, we ask that you please make it known as we stand and as we sing.